Well, good morning. It's awesome to be here. As Kevin said, my name is John Munchell. Um, I am a member of Connect Us Church. I'm proud to be here. I'm happy to serve on our teaching team and our leadership team. Um, And it's been such a blessing to be involved with um, all of y'all and do ministry and do life together and just see how God is moving because God is moving in incredible ways um, all throughout um, not only this church, but throughout Lancaster County and, and the bigger church as a whole. And that's just amazing. So thank you so much for your prayers and your support. I have felt the love this week. Thank you very much. Um, but we're going to continue worshiping today by looking at an event that is recorded uh, for us in God's Word, an event that most of us are probably familiar with, an event that happened over 2,000 years ago. Um, this event is something that we need to pay attention to. And I just want to say that you don't need to have a literary degree. You don't need to have gone to Bible study to know that if something is mentioned more than once, if something is talked about maybe a couple times, that is the author very not so subtly saying, hey, pay attention to this. I need you to pay attention to what's going on in this story. And that goes double for what we see uh, in Scripture because when the authors mention something or reference another portion of Scripture or have a certain account more than once, that is God's way of telling us, this is important, pay attention to this. So if God's telling us, we should probably pay attention. Now what you're asking is, what event are we talking about? And of course, it is Palm Sunday. Today is Palm Sunday, of course, a day that we celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's an incredible event. And it's something that we're going to be looking at today. But before we begin, I just want to open us up again in prayer and just commit this time to the Lord. So, Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at your word. Lord, to see what you're doing, to see how your history has been unfolding. It's such a gift, Lord, to see your word becoming real for us, God. We just pray that you would be in this space, that you would be leading us, that you would change hearts, Lord, and that for the people here that need to hear this message, for the people that maybe have been walking with you for a while, Lord, we just pray for just a reignition of faith and that people would be coming to faith, Lord, and that this story would be one that stays with us and we remember the true place of Jesus in your kingdom. And it's in your name that we pray, Lord. Amen. So again, we're going to be looking uh, at Palm Sunday. Now, uh, turn to Matthew 21. That's where we're going to be looking. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, shame on you. That's that's on you. Um, The words will be on the screen. And if you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay because we'll have the words. But if you don't have a Bible, we would love to send you home with one. We have free Bibles here. So visit the New Here area, and we'd be happy to send you home with a free copy of God's Word. And that's a pretty good deal. So hit that up. Uh, We'd be happy to give you that. So again... We're in Matthew chapter 21, and let me just set the stage a little bit here, because I think sometimes, myself included, these stories start to lose some of their extraordinary nature, right? And it's not because the story itself is dull or boring, because the Bible is anything, if not not boring at all, I promise. There's so much that goes on. But we sometimes hear these stories preached year after year, maybe even multiple times a year, and we're just kind of like, yeah, okay, Palm Sunday comes in, yeah, the palms, yeah, okay. It starts to lose some of its extraordinary nature. But church, I'm here to tell you that Palm Sunday was not a normal day. That's been the theme of our Easter series, is this idea of different, and Palm Sunday was very, very different. I want to set the stage a little bit too, because there's a lot happening in the background that leads up to this. So I, know you to, I told you to open your Bibles, you can read ahead, but stay with me a little bit here. In the background of this event, we have to remember what's going on during this specific time, particularly in Jerusalem and Israel um, in the larger context. 
because there's a lot happening. The first, of course, is that the Israelites have been under Roman occupation for almost 100 years up to this point. We sort of tend to forget about that. We hear mentions of Rome, and we hear about the Roman Empire, and we sort of forget that they had occupied quite a lot of land and um, had occupied quite a bit of people in the process. So during this event that we're about to read together that God records for us in his word, we have to remember that all throughout the New Testament and other historical sources, the authors talk about how this was a very, very tense time. And the reason it was tense was due to the occupation, but it's what the occupation brought with it. Not only was it taxes, which were crippling the people who worked day-to-day to earn wages, unlike us, who we get you know, paychecks bi-weekly and things, so they had to pay daily wages to Rome for things that they didn't even know was going on and things that they religiously couldn't support. So they're being taxed out the wazoo. Some of us can understand that. The second thing that's happening is that during this occupation, all of the Roman guards, the centurions, the soldiers are occupying the streets. So you have this physical presence of Rome all around you at all times. And these guard groups that are going around, and their main goal is to make sure that no one's really creating a fuss, that no one's causing a stir, because there's nothing that the emperor hated more than people getting rowdy that he couldn't control. So they were there to, to quell any sort of opposition. And then you have all these groups starting to pop up. Some of them were called zealots. Right? Even Simon the Zealot, we read about Jesus' one disciple. These were extremist groups that rose up to fight back against Rome. So there's a lot going on before we get into this story. Meanwhile, the Jewish people have a tension that they're facing, right? It's not just Rome. The Jewish people under occupation are saying, well, we want to serve the Lord. The Lord is our emperor. The Lord is our king. And yet they're being forced to do things that they don't necessarily agree with. And you have this promise that the Jewish people have had ever since the Garden of Eden, when God created the heavens and the earth, all the beasts of the land, all the fish of the sea, and created people. You guys remember that, right? That's a pretty popular book. But God promised that one day, someone from the human race would eventually come and save the people from their sins, save the people from what is actually holding them captive. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see glimpses of this promise. We see people that represented the future of this promise. People like Abraham and Moses, awesome people of faith. People like Ruth. All these people that were representative of what was to come. So you have that going on. People waiting. People waiting for the coming Messiah. The person that would deliver them from evil, deliver them from bondage, deliver them from slavery, something that the Jewish people knew all too well because they had faced it for the majority of their existence. So they're waiting. They're hopeful. But it's been hundreds of years since God had spoken to them. And now they're being occupied again. I can just imagine them being there and thinking like, I thought we were the chosen people. Is that what, this was what chosen people is? I don't know if I want this anymore. Because it's hard. They're being occupied. They don't seem like a chosen people. So they're waiting for this coming king that God had promised in the scriptures. So there's political tension. We have religious tensions. Never a great combo. And for the last three years up to this point, a guy named Jesus was doing his public ministry He was healing people. The blind people could see. People being raised from the dead. The kingdom of God was being preached to the poor. And can I get an amen? Amen. Thank you, church. Someone's awake. So Jesus has started to create quite the scene, quite the buzz. 
right? Because these things are happening, and they're not happening in a vacuum. They're happening to real people that are talking to other people. So Jesus is creating quite the name for himself at this point. People were talking about Jesus everywhere. They were asking about him. Who is he? Some people thought maybe he was Elijah. Some people said, I think he's crazy. Some people said, no, I, I think he's just the, the newest prophet that, that God has sent to us. We haven't had a prophet in a while, right? Or maybe he's the Messiah. Things started to circulate. People were talking about Jesus. And they were excited for the first time in a long time. Political tension, religious tension, and now this potential hope that the Messiah had come. So here comes Jesus. And let me just mention one more thing, if that wasn't enough to pique your interest on this story. This is all occurring during the Jewish celebration of Passover. And Passover is significantly important to Holy Week in general, particularly when we celebrate the resurrection of Christ and his crucifixion, which we'll get to next week, so come back for that. But they're celebrating Passover, and part of that was this pilgrimage that people had to make from wherever they were living to the temple to pay their tithes, to pay their offerings, to give sacrifices to God, to celebrate the Passover. So not only are the people in Jerusalem there celebrating Jesus and hearing about Jesus and talking about Jesus, we have thousands and thousands of people that are flooding into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. What? So now you have more people crammed into this city. So you can feel it starting to get a little like that. Ah, something's about to happen here. It's getting a little itchy. And when they would make this pilgrimage, they had similar roads that they would take. Not quite like ours, of course. They weren't paved and nice and full of potholes, but they were roads nonetheless. And people would travel these roads to and from the main cities. So they're talking to each other. They're passing each other. They're singing hymns. They're, they're, they're praying psalms over each other. They're celebrating the Jewish religion, the Jewish culture. And naturally, it's going to come up, right? Do you guys hear about uh, Lazarus? You remember when he died? Oh, yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, Jesus rose him from the dead. Wait, what? Are you serious? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, I hope he's in Jerusalem. Hint. So, we have all this happening. All these people flooding in, everyone talking about Jesus, everyone intermingling, and you have all this tension. Political tension, religious tension, and hope. And that is where our story begins. That is where Jesus enters. So turn with me now, finally, to Matthew 21. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead, and he said, Go into the village over there, he said. And as soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks you what you're doing, just say, The Lord needs them and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, Tell the people of Jerusalem, Look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. So the two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him, and they threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting. They were shouting, praise God for the son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. Hosanna. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. 
Who is this? They asked. And the crowds replied, It's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. It's a powerful story. And there's so much here <laughs> to talk about that Kevin and I were joking that uh, maybe this would be like a, a week-long sermon because there's so much symbolism here. The first, of course, that we're going to address is the palms. It is called Palm Sunday after all. So what is with the palms? What is with people throwing down their garments? What is this for? Because there's so much hope and joy that is captured in these passages that we need to understand. Why are people throwing these things? Why are people waving things around? It was different, but why? The reason it was different is because it was culturally accepted that whenever a returning king, a general, or an emperor from an opposing army would come back to their city after defeating an army, that the people would celebrate this victory just like this. They would cut the palms off the trees. They'd be waving them around. They'd be putting their coats on the ground out of a sign of respect for the victory of the king in these capital cities. Even in the Old Testament, we see this. Uh, God shows us in 2 Kings 9.13, at that time, the king of Israel was named Jehu, and that's what the people of Israel did to celebrate his victory. They laid their cloaks on the ground. So this was important. This laying of the cloaks wasn't just, okay, it's kind of a warm day, I'm going to shed a layer. This was intentional. This was purposeful, and this mattered. This was different. The same thing with the palms. This was intentional. It was symbolic. This was the people saying that Jesus might be this king. They were celebrating him as the king. We also have to remember that there's other characters happening in this story. There's the religious leaders of Israel as well. People that knew the scriptures. People that knew what Jesus was doing. They were there as well and they saw this. They knew what was going on. The other thing we need to look at, that I don't know if we talk about enough as a church community, is this idea of Jesus riding in on a donkey. Because I don't know about you, but when I think about a coming king, I don't think about a donkey. I think about a horse, right? You think about a, a giant horse. Who here has ridden a horse before? Most everyone. Wow. Okay. Horses are big, right? Horses are powerful. They represent this like really majestic sort of powerful thing. A lot of people when they're growing up are really into horses. They'll have the folders and the pencils and stuff because horses are just majestic. They're powerful. In popular movies, you see kings and uh, you know emperors, conquerors coming in riding a, a big horse, usually bigger than the people behind it. Maybe it's an all white horse or something because it's powerful. So begs the question, if you're a king, if you're this powerful king, if you're the king of the universe, why in the world are you coming on a donkey? What? It's like the lamest animal ever. When I think of a king, I don't think of Eeyore. You know, I, I, I think of a horse. I think of a big horse. So what was Jesus doing? Well, the authors of this gospel were nice enough to tell us. And we see this in verse 5. This was to fulfill a prophecy about the coming eternal king of Israel which is recorded for us in Zechariah 9, 9, which I think we have a slide of here, which we'll put up. So this is written in the Old Testament. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. He's humble. This was maybe starting to mix some expectations that the people had of who the king would be. 
And this was written over 500 years before Jesus was even born, by the way. Remember last week, Pastor Kevin was preaching on the old system and the old ways and how sometimes we need to step out of our comfort zone and step into this new thing. Well, this is an example of Jesus doing exactly that. But church, Jesus was not coming to abolish these prophecies. He was coming to fulfill them, to bring them into fruition, to redeem them, to show them what they were truly for, to show the people what they had been reading about and praying about and hoping for, that maybe they were misunderstanding. So I think there would have been some people in that crowd that might have been confused about the donkey because we're very privileged to have God's written word. But some of these people, we have to give them all due credit. They, ha- they heard it orally, and maybe they forgot this prophecy written down 500 years ago. But I can guarantee that the Pharisees didn't. The Pharisees knew exactly what Jesus was doing. So they see, okay, they're laying down their coats. They're laying down the palms. Here he comes on that donkey. Uh-oh, we know what's happening. Because they knew. They memorized the Old Testament scriptures. They knew exactly what Jesus was doing. He was was fulfilling a very certain prophecy about a very certain person. And as a side note, there's over 300 messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Messianic referring to the Messiah or Christ. Jesus fulfills every single one of them. The statistical probability of that happening is infinitesimal. Over the thousands of years of the Old Testament that's recorded in history, there is almost no chance that one person could fulfill every single one, and Jesus did. We'll post that resource on our website and send it out. I'm not making this up. Or just go to God's Word, which you can get a free one in the lobby. It's there as well. So Jesus was using symbolism, right? Jesus is using symbolism to show that he was the king that was promised. Do you see what he's doing? He's starting to stack these things on top of each other. Because symbols are important, and symbols are what people remember. Because some of these people wouldn't have known what the donkey was for, but they would look back on these things and say, oh, oh, I remember that. Because they remember symbols. They remember these things that take on more meaning than just the object itself. A really good example of this is who is familiar with uh, Marvel, the Avengers, Spider-Man, all that kind of stuff? I think most people are pretty familiar. Well, there's a character in Marvel, and his name is Thor, okay? Thor is the Norse mythology, lowercase g, god of thunder. And Thor has a very specific weapon that he uses called Mjolnir. If anyone ever doubted I was a nerd, there you go. I know Thor's hammer's name, so that's great. But Mjolnir is special because it was given to Thor, and he can use it, but other people can't pick up this hammer. It has certain characteristics, it has certain attributes to it that only certain people can do. And if you're familiar with Marvel and Thor and all this thing, you know that The only people that can pick it up are people that are worthy. worthy. Exactly. People that are worthy. It's a symbolism. The hammer represents something more than just the hammer itself. It represents the intrinsic character of the person picking it up. For those not familiar with the Avengers and Marvel, don't get into it. It's too long and it's going on too much at this point. But you might be familiar with King Arthur, right? Maybe a bit more familiar with this. King Arthur pulling the sword from the stone that no one was able to do because he was worthy. And it showed that he was the true king. Church, what Jesus did on Palm Sunday was exactly like that. Because God had placed a, not a physical hammer, not Mjolnir specifically, not the sword and the stone, but God had placed that hammer just like that since the beginning of Genesis. 
saying that someone's going to come and be able to pick this up. And only one person was able to do that. Only one person could ever do that, and that is Jesus. And that's exactly what he was showing us on Palm Sunday. The Pharisees knew what he was doing. They knew the symbols that he was using. And they knew what it meant for the people to be shouting what they were shouting. Those weren't just random phrases. Those weren't just random things that they thought of. These were followers of Judaism that knew the scriptures, that knew the Psalms. What they were shouting was Psalm 118, which is a messianic song about the coming king, the eternal king of Israel. So remember earlier when I said that the Pharisees were uh, this religious group and there was tension there and there was tension from Rome about not wanting to create quite a stir? Well, now you have the entire city in an uproar. You have the religious leaders questioning Jesus because he is not saying for the people to quiet down. In fact, it's interesting because this is actually one of the only times, this is one of the first times in Jesus' earthly ministry that he allows people to openly praise him as the Messiah. So much so that the teachers, the Pharisees among them, and this is from Luke's gospel, say, teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. And Jesus replies, and this is great, if they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. Nothing is going to stop the truth of God. Nothing. And that's what Jesus is showing us here. And the Pharisees knew that. The Pharisees could hear what Jesus was saying. They knew what he was doing. They knew what this represented. And Jesus, this isn't a happy coincidence. This isn't circumstance that all these people are here. Jesus waited for a very particular time for a very particular group of people to be there. He waited for the exact moment when Jerusalem would be packed full of people. Because he knew that they would witness all these events that we're going to be talking about in the next week. He knew that when they would return home, they'd be telling people about the incredible things they witnessed Jesus do in this final week as they were there for Passover. I mean, can you imagine someone coming home from that trip and they're sort of thinking about everything that's happened that, yeah, Jesus came in on this donkey and everyone was freaking out and then, and then we killed him and then he, someone said he rose from the dead and it was crazy and then I had to come home and it was just nuts. And that, you know, that guy's wife being like, okay, sure, yeah, great. Because it's hard to believe, but they were there. They were witnesses to this event and these events that happened throughout this week. So we have a king's procession, prophecies being fulfilled. Jesus is making an entrance and does he take the procession to go overthrow Rome Does he take the procession to the capital city because he's raising up an army of people? Does he say, let's go get on these donkeys with me and we're going to go take back the city? The expectations of people are high. No. In fact, he takes them to the one place they were the most familiar with. In Mark's gospel, it shows us that Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. All the pomp, all the circumstance, all the procession, people shouting, praise be to God, glory to God, the Messiah is here. And Jesus leads them to the temple. He takes the procession to the temple in Jerusalem because in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the temple was symbolic. It's where God chose to dwell among his people. 
It's where God said, that's where my spirit will be. Back when Moses was leading the Israelites out of slavery from Egypt, they had the tabernacle. and They would set up the tabernacle, and, and that's where God's spirit and his presence would be with his people. As we come into the kingdom, God says, now you're an established nation. You're going to build a temple, and that's where I'm going to be with you. That's where my presence will be. That's where you will come to gather and to worship and to know who I am. They came to the temple. Because Jesus took them to the entrance, it shows us that Jesus didn't take the people to the throne of man. He took them to the throne of God. And that matters. It showed us that the people had an expectation of Jesus overthrowing earthly powers, but he came to reconcile us to God and not to man. That's why he took them to the temple. He was taking them to God. He was taking them to the Father, the true source of life. He showed us that he truly came to redeem. wasn't just the nation itself, wasn't just the political oppression. It was our relationship to God. This changed people's expectations. That is what happens when Jesus is the center of our lives. When Jesus is the center, our expectations change. See, church, we need to lay down those expectations. We need to lay down their expectations just like the people did with their palms and their garments. We spiritually need to lay those things down. Because Jesus will never meet our expectations. Because he will always exceed them. Every single time. Frankly, my expectations of Jesus are nothing compared to what he gives and offers us. I almost said offers us freely, but it wasn't free. And we'll see that in the coming days. Because Jesus wants to lead us to the Father. That is why the title of this message is Stay Centered on Jesus. When we stay in his word, when we stay centered on him, that is when we can truly know who Jesus is. Because those people that were following him in the procession, most of them probably didn't understand the, the importance of this donkey or the fact that um, people were laying down the palms and the garments. They didn't, maybe didn't get the symbolism. And some of them, maybe they did. But we have God's word to know that. We should be able to see these things and say, oh, wait, that's sort of like what happened here and find that connection because everything is connected that God wants to show us in his word. So when we center on Christ, when we center on his word, our expectations change. He's not gonna meet our expectations, I can promise you that. Because my expectations are full of sin. My expectations are earthly. My expectations are that of man. But Jesus has expectations that are so much higher. That's why we need to center on Jesus. And that's why the, that is the title of this message. Another way that we can center on Jesus is doing this, is engaging in Christian community. God's word tells us that where two or more gather in his name, there he will be with them as well. And today Jesus is here with us. Jesus' spirit is here with us. That's what it means to be centered on Jesus. It means showing up when you don't want to, not because you're checking a box or you think that God's going to like you more or love you more because you went to church, but because he deserves adoration and respect and honor. And the people that are around you can help with that. They can help you walk with God. They can answer your questions. They can walk with you in your low points and your high points. They can help you connect to God. They can help you read his word. They can help you stay centered on Jesus when we want to start walking away when it doesn't feel right being in the center of the procession with Jesus. In Matthew's gospel, it says that he was at the center. 
Jesus was at the center of the procession. So stay there with him. Don't go to the outside. Don't go on just the fringes of the group and try and peek in and see what's going on. Get in the center with him. Because he's leading you to the Father. He's taking you to the temple. He's taking you to God. I promise you. Stay centered on Jesus. When we spend time in prayer, we're staying centered on Jesus. When we're fasting, we're staying centered on Jesus. We have interactions with our coworkers and we start asking them about their relationship with God. Even though it's uncomfortable, we're staying centered on Jesus. And Christ used all these things throughout his ministry to show the importance of being in relationship with God. Jesus wasn't just making these things up. He didn't just say, hey, go grab me that donkey. And if the guy asked, I don't know, make something up about I need it or something, whatever. He was using very purposeful language. He was referring back to scripture to fulfill exactly what he was saying. Jesus modeled this the best for us so that we can model it as well. Again, as Kevin preached last week, Jesus didn't come to abolish these systems, but he came to fulfill them. He was fulfilling it. He was fulfilling the scriptures. And when we center our lives on him, when we spend time in his word, surround ourselves with other believers, spend time in prayer, God encourages us. God helps us. God teaches us. And he shows us what it means to center on Christ. And church, the reason that that is so important, the reason we need to center on Christ is that some of that crowd that were shouting, Hosanna, blessed be the son of God. A few short days later, were yelling, crucify him. They were spitting on him. They were mocking him. As he carried a cross on his back that was cut open and full of splinters. And he carried that cross for us, for our sin. A cross that eventually he would be nailed to Because he loves us enough to take that punishment for us, the punishment that we rightfully deserve because of our sin. And church, so often we want to read these accounts and think that we'd be right there in the center of the procession, that we'd be right there with Jesus. We'd be cheering him on. We'd go with him. Sometimes we read ourselves as maybe being the disciples themselves or maybe even Jesus in a situation that we'd step up and say the right thing. But I think more often than not, We're the Pharisees. We're the people telling you to be quiet. We're the people that want to stay on the outskirts because we're too afraid. And every time we do that, every time we ignore God's will in our lives, every time we say no to God, every time we choose to do the wrong thing or choose not to tell people about Christ, we drive those nails into his hands because it's for our sin that he died. All of our sin. But he was willing to do it because he loves us. So Jesus doesn't offer this freely. It came with a cost that he paid for you. And that's beautiful. That's such a higher expectation than we could ever imagine or set for ourselves. And we could never do that. He was still willing to die for us. And that is a king that is worth following. It's worth following and we're usually too afraid to do it. Myself included. I'm not standing up on a soapbox saying that I'm perfect or that I have the full understanding of this because I don't. But how often are we too afraid to put Jesus in the center of our lives? How often are we too afraid to join the center of that procession? How often are we the bystanders of the procession? We shout, we cheer, we pray, we come here on Sundays, we say, yes, Lord. But the emotion wears off when we start leaving back to business as usual, right? It's true. 
I do it too. But I can promise you that Jesus has such a better plan for your life than business as usual. He wants it to be different. He doesn't want business as usual. And when we make Jesus the center of the procession of our lives and we stay there with him, that's the key. It's staying there. It's making the commitment to be there with Jesus. With him, it is so much more rewarding, so much more beautiful, so much more important than any of us could ever imagine because of the plans that he has set for us before the foundations of this earth. Church, we can trust Jesus. We can trust this king. And yeah, admittedly, it might get a little loud sometimes. There might be some shouting. Maybe it'll get a little chaotic because there's so many people and we can't really figure out what's going on because we don't have all the answers. But that's okay. It might get a little scary. But Jesus is leading us to something so much bigger, so much more important, and so much greater than anything we could imagine. So stop standing on the sidelines and watching Jesus go by and join him in the center of the procession. Make him the center of your life. What's stopping you? Jesus laid out the case. I am the king. I am the Messiah. You know what? I'll prove it to you based on scripture. I'll die for you. I'll be risen from the grave for you because you're mine and I love you. That's the kind of king that we follow. That's the kind of king that we worship. If you're following Christ already, would you just pray something like, Lord, I know I don't always make you the center of my life, and I'm sorry. But Father, please just reignite in me the fire that you instilled in me through the Holy Spirit by putting my faith in you through your Son of Jesus Christ. Lord, help me to see that. Help me to live for you. Help me to make you the center of my life. Jesus, I want to do that. I want to be different. I'm tired of business as usual. I'm ready to be in the center of the procession with Jesus. And if you have yet to accept Jesus as the true Messiah, which could be some of you here, or maybe you know some people, Jesus is the one who came to save us, who came to save you and me while we were still sinners. What is stopping you? Just listen. Take time to pray and listen to the cheers and the joy and the praise from those that are following him. Join them. Join us in following him. Because just like Jesus took those people to the temple, Jesus told us that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father but through him. So follow him to God. There is no other way, regardless of what our culture wants you to think or believe or preach to you. It's only Jesus. So make him the center of your life. Make that commitment today, because we are not guaranteed tomorrow. You have one chance to do that. So get right with God because Jesus got right for you. Trust in him and come join the sound of all the redeemed as we praise Christ. Stay centered on Jesus. I invite the worship team back up to lead us in a final thought.